One of the most famous quotes of all time goes as follows. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Benjamin Franklin, 1789. This was true in, in Franklin's time. Sadly, this is still true today, over 200 years later. But amazingly, this was even true thousands of years before Franklin was even alive. The concept of taxes has been alive and well ever since mankind organized into governments. And even though it was some 2,000 years ago now, the time of Jesus saw this incredible tax machine already in place. The Roman Empire had this amazing tax system, and we come to see it in action in our passage today in Mark chapter 2. And taxes are found all throughout the Bible. The Jews themselves were no strangers to taxes. In fact, their early tax system came from God himself. The Jewish tithing system was essentially a form of taxation. Now, it's supposed to come from a willing heart, a sacrificial heart, a servant's heart, sure, but it was pretty much a way for the people to contribute to the needs of the state. It's a little different for Israel, though, because at first they were a theocracy and their tithes didn't go to, to fund a military or pay for a king. It went to fund their priesthood. These taxes were designed to support the Levites, the tabernacle, their sacrificial system, and so forth. It was like a spiritual taxation, but it was a tax nonetheless. But things changed dramatically for Israel, though, when they became ruled by kings, especially foreign kings, especially when they were under foreign rule. These foreign kings imposed huge taxes on Israel and imposed a great burden upon them. They found themselves not only having to pay for their own sacrificial system, their own worship system, but also for their pagan overlords. This made them incredibly bitter, and this resentment reached its zenith when Israel found itself under Roman rule and the Roman tax machine. Even by the time of Jesus, the Jews were still being heavily burdened by these Roman taxes, so much so that even Jesus was forced to pay taxes. And he did so willingly. And he famously said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. However, the Jews still accused Jesus before Pontius Pilate, of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which is just a clear lie. But it goes to show you that even for Jesus, death and taxes were two final realities. Now, why do we bring all this up? Well, in the passage we have before us today, we find Jesus dealing not just with taxes, but with those who collect them, tax collectors. And if there is one thing the Jews hated more than taxes, it was those who collected them, the tax collectors, especially Jewish tax collectors. Jewish tax collectors were seen by their fellow Jews as the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low. Yet the way we see Jesus interact with this hated group of people, it may surprise you. I certainly shocked and surprised the religious Jews who were spying on Jesus. So in our passage today, Mark chapter 2, we're going to make our way through verses 13 through 17. We see another episode that describes this rising tension and opposition to the ministry of Jesus. He's starting to be opposed now by these religious leaders. And this time the focus is on Christ's relationship to some of the most hated people around, 
tax collectors. And our goal today is simple. We're just going to graze through our passage and seeing what lessons we can glean from Jesus and these tax collectors and even the Pharisees. So let's start with this. Just look at verse 13 and let me point out to you the context. First, the context. Verse 13. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Verse 13 jumps forward a little bit in time to the near future. Christ has gone out again to the Sea of Galilee by the shore, a place he liked to visit. Maybe he was trying to find some seclusion. Rarely did he find it, though. The crowds always found him. They always rushed him. We rarely see him truly alone. As verse 13 describes, all the people were coming to him again. Like the seashore itself, wave after wave of people crashed upon Jesus, one after another. A steady stream of people went out to him, but he takes advantage of the opportunity. He always does. When people come to him, he he will take advantage of that crowd. And so he begins to teach the crowds by the shore. And we'll love to heard what he said that day. Mark, as is typical for Mark, doesn't actually tell us the content of his teaching on that afternoon but he does tell us what happens next verse 13 is really just a quick setup for what comes next starting in verse 14 we see now the call secondly verse 14 notice the call and as he passed by he saw levi the son of alphaeus sitting in the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he got up and followed him As Jesus is walking on this road near the sea, he sees a tax booth. There's this main road that led from Damascus a little bit further north through Capernaum and then out to the Mediterranean Sea. Capernaum was one of the main tax collecting centers in Palestine for the Roman Empire. And goods entering the city and and leaving the city would be taxed, including fish. If you remember a little bit while ago, which is a big industry in Capernaum, we've got Peter, James, and Uh, John and Simon, four fishermen there. So this Levi, he was one of the the, the tax collectors who would stop merchants on the road and make them pay, make sure that they had paid their taxes before they enter the city or leave the city. He was the one to stop them. Now, who exactly is this Levi character, however, the son of Alphaeus? Well, you might know him better by his other name, which is Matthew. Matthew. This is Matthew, the same Matthew who became one of the 12 apostles, the same Matthew who wrote the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew himself records the same event in his gospel, and there he goes by his new name, which was Matthew. The name Matthew means gift of God. And just as Jesus gave Simon a new name, he gave him the new name Peter, We don't know this for sure, but most likely Jesus gave Levi the new name Matthew, meaning gift of God. These name changes, though, they also have a touch of irony. Peter was the least likely at first to be called the rock. And likewise, Matthew was the least likely at first to be called the gift of God because his profession was all about stealing from people. And we find Matthew not fishing like Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And that was a respectable profession. But Matthew was a tax 
collector. And I mentioned this briefly before, but you really have to realize how bad this was in their shoes, in their eyes. Being a tax collector was the worst thing you could do back then. And you have to understand the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, as it grew, they conquered all these other lands and these other nations. They had this real challenge of keeping track of all these people and then taxing them. It was hard back then. So they gave up on trying to tax people individually, and they just decided to tax their nations, their, their, their country, by province. By province. Each province was given like a tax quota. So, for example, just in modern terms, you know, they might say that the province of Palestine in the next year had to, had to come up with $10 million in tax revenue or whatever. You get the point. By province, they were given a tax quota. But the Romans didn't even collect these taxes themselves. They farmed it out in a process called tax farming. The right to collect taxes in a province was sold to the highest bidder. And this person had to pay Rome the $10 million plus whatever his bid was. But there was nothing to stop this person from collecting more than what he had to, for instance, the $10 million. And in fact, everything this person collected above what he owed was just pure profit. So if he if you know if he had a, if he was responsible for getting 10 million from Palestine, he could get 12 million, 15 million. It's all his. It's all profit. So as you can imagine, this whole process led to a ton of corruption and greed and extortion. These people who farmed out these taxes, they're known as publicans. You may have heard that word before, and if you read your New Testament, publicans. They, had, they themselves had their own subordinates to do the actual collecting, and that's where things got really corrupt. You have these subordinate tax collectors, and they were just experts in extortion and greed. They had this arbitrary power to stop people on the road, make them unpack, and then just tax them, whatever they wanted to, based on what they had. Or they could make people, give them a little kickback to, to leave them alone. If people couldn't pay, they were known to forcibly make people take a loan from them and then charge them these exorbitant interest rates. They were kind of like the ancient mafia or thugs. Many were just essentially thieves, except they could steal from people in broad daylight and they wouldn't get in trouble for it. Of course, they attracted a rotten crowd, other extortionists and thugs and criminals and people to help enforce their little power. And in all, they were seen as really the most wicked scum of the earth. Everybody hated these tax collectors. Now, the Jews hated these Roman tax collectors and publicans. I mean, Rome was that evil Gentile empire that oppressed them, stole their sovereignty, persecuted their faith. I mean, they hated the Romans and this tax burden that was imposed upon them. But you know what the Jews hated even more? They hated other Jews who became tax collectors. These, these were the worst of the worst. They were, they were like traitors to their own nation. I mean, how could you join with those Gentile dogs and, and help support their evil empire and get their money by robbing from your own people? I mean, just imagine the hatred you would feel if you're, if you're a French citizen during World War II and the Nazis take you over You've been conquered. 
But you have other of your countrymen who decide to join up and work for the Nazis as the local police officers. I mean, how would you feel towards them? The, the French themselves hated these traitors. And that's how much the Jews hated these Jewish tax collectors. I mean, you would, you would work for Rome and rob your own people. Uh, how could you? And so according to Jewish law, tax collectors were grouped with thieves and murderers. They were in that group. That's, where, that's the group they lived in. They were barred from serving as a judge or a witness. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were out. They could not even step foot in the door. The touch of a tax collector made your house unclean. And just being friends with the tax collector made you unclean. People were forbidden from receiving money from tax collectors because their money was seen as stolen. And the Jews even ruled that it was okay to lie to a tax collector before God. Okay to lie to them because they were that evil. This just goes to show you how much they hated them. And I tell you this for a reason. It's so that you can really understand the scandal in verse 14. I mean, if you lived back then, if you were a Jew, you, you wouldn't need this explained to you. You would just feel this resentment. But we need this background because now that you know how the Jews felt about tax collectors, you can see that what happens next is really a scandal. And look again at verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Wait a second. Jesus is calling a tax collector to follow him? I mean, he's, he's not rebuking him. He's not condemning him. I mean, how, how could this be? It was unacceptable to have a tax collector as your disciple. I mean, these are the people that nobody wanted. You don't want them on your team. If you're a rabbi, you do not want tax collectors following you. That's not what you want. But this is the scandal. This is the scandal of grace. Jesus came to redeem. And who needs redemption more than sinners? You know, if tax collectors really were the scum of the earth, then who is a better candidate for salvation? Isn't that the whole point? And that is the point. That's why Jesus came, which will become very clear in the next few verses. Jesus came to show that no one is unreachable, that no one is untouchable to God. And as we saw a little bit while ago, First, he touches the the physical leper. And here now, he's touching the social leper, the tax collector. And the lesson behind this, of course, is crystal clear. That no one, even today, is beyond the reach of God's call to salvation. Redemption through Christ is open to all. And no one is too far gone in their sins. No one is too rotten to be redeemed. Anyone can be called. And you need to realize that this call still goes forth today. Like Jesus himself said, repent and believe in the gospel. Or Acts 17.30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Or Romans 10.9, 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Hebrews 3.15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so listen, you still hear his voice. You still hear the call of God to salvation. It's right here. It's in scripture. This call is still issued to all. And so you need to hear it and respond. Even though God chooses, his call demands a response. And Matthew responded by God's grace. And what did he do? Verse 14, he got up and he followed him. Luke in his gospel adds that Levi left everything behind to follow Jesus. Matthew knew that this call was radical, comprehensive, and decisive. If he was to obey this call to follow Jesus, that he knew that everything in his life which didn't line up with following Jesus had to go. And for him, that included this very lucrative but very corrupt profession of being a tax collector. You know, Peter and the others, they could always go back to fishing. If this whole following Jesus thing fell through, they could go back to fishing. But Matthew knew if, if he was going to follow, this, this old way of life couldn't come with. There was no going back. But it was worth it because what Jesus offers is so much better. And he offers eternal life. And likewise, you need to respond to Jesus in a a radical, comprehensive, and decisive way. Don't just be interested about Jesus. Don't Don't just wonder about him. And don't even just read about him. You have to follow him. Give him your entire life, which means you trust him entirely in faith to save you. And you're going to live the life he calls you to for God's glory. And this call is for you. If you're ever in doubt, if you're ever in doubt as to whether God could ever accept someone like you, just remember Matthew. God is in the business of redeeming the rotten. And actually, as we move on, we come to learn that the door of salvation is only open to people who realize just how rotten they are. Matthew knew he was a sinner in need of a Savior. So when Jesus called, he he was ready. He was ready to follow. And the result was a celebration. And that's what comes next. We've seen the context. Secondly, the call. Thirdly now, let me point you to verse 15. Look what happens next. It's the celebration. The celebration. Look at verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. So what is going on here? Well, a celebration. That's what's going on. Matthew is hosting this huge dinner party at his house, and he had a big house. You know, being a tax collector came with certain privileges, lots of money. And he could afford a large house, and he packed it out and had a feast 
This was a special occasion. And there was a special guest. Jesus was the guest of honor on this occasion. But it's the other attendees that might shock you. And who else was at this dinner party? Well, it says that Jesus and his disciples were dining and reclining with not just a few, but many tax collectors and sinners. I mean, listen, you have all these rotten people under the same roof, and I, I guarantee you that the Pharisees, they would just pray to God that an earthquake, earthquake would come and just swallow this house up. Can we just kill all these tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus was in there because he saw an entire house of people whom he would never see in a synagogue. Remember, he did a lot of his ministry in the synagogues, but he would never see and encounter these people in a synagogue because they were out. They were kicked out. Today, we would call these people the unchurched, those who just never step foot in a church. And if we just, if we ourselves only stay in these four safe little walls, we'll never reach them. And if Jesus, if he just stayed in the safe little confines of the synagogue, he would never reach these people as well. But yet he was around them. He was in their midst. And we learn that his mission was more about calling sinners like Matthew than not. Now, don't confuse, though, Jesus eating with sinners with Jesus condoning their sin. He never did. He harshly condemned their sin, always. But these people, they're the sick. They're the lost. These are the ones who need to be healed, who need to be found. And that's why he came. That that was his mission. Jesus did not come to live in a monastery on Mount Everest, but to be around sinners, to preach to them, to call them. He came down in the dirt. He came touching lepers and calling sinners. And that's the whole point. And a side note, where do you think he will call us to do this same work? In in the monasteries, in the, the four safe confined walls of the church, or out in the crowds, out in the world among the sinners? But of course, although Jesus is around sinners, he never participates in their wickedness. He's always light amidst the darkness. And and this is some guidance for you. And we answered this back uh, several months ago in a Q&A sermon. But it is perfectly fine for Christians to associate with non-Christians. In fact, you must. Because how else will they hear the good news? It's okay to be in the world. In fact, you cannot avoid being in the world. However, you must not be of the world. You must keep yourself unstained by worldliness. So be holy. Be a light in their midst. Show them Jesus and his compassion and give them the words of life. Now, on this occasion, though, the implication is that many of these tax collectors and sinners They weren't tax collectors and sinners anymore, if you get what I'm saying. They had started to follow Jesus. Matthew threw this party to introduce his old friends with his new master in the hopes that they would follow him too. And it looks like many of them did. 
looks like many of them received the call to follow Jesus and turn from their sinful ways. And, and keep in mind, that, that's what Jesus does. He transforms people. We see Jesus around unbelievers, around even wicked people. But it's for a purpose. It's to share the light with them. And he never entered their wicked world. Meaning, we don't see Jesus entering the tax booth and then joining Levi in his extortion so that he can share the gospel with them. We never see Jesus going into a tavern and getting drunk just so that he can share the gospel with the lost. That should be clear, I hope. Instead, Jesus redeems people. He transforms people. They change. They follow. And then, and only then, can they have a true fellowship with the Lord. But in all, we can say that verse 15, the celebration, it's definitely the right response. Coming to Jesus and, and receiving salvation, knowing that your entire debt of sin has been wiped away, that's something to rejoice about. Do you feel the joy of salvation? Or do you feel it? Because if you don't, something's wrong with you. You should feel and want to rejoice that God has forgiven you your debt and reconciled you. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the signs of new life. It's like the father said when the prodigal son returned. You remember that? The prodigal son returned and he, he, he wanted to rejoice, but the other brother was, was upset and grumbling. And remember what the father said to the, to the other brother? He said this, Luke 15, 32. He told him, look, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. And so he says, we have to celebrate. We have to rejoice. And so should you. And these tax collectors, these sinners, they were on the inside of that house this evening and they were rejoicing in their salvation. Certainly Matthew. But at the same time, while all this is going on, there's another group of people. They're not inside, they're outside the house. And they're not rejoicing. They're grumbling. Kind of like the brother to the prodigal son. And this leads us to number four now, the controversy. Seeing the context, the call. Now, fourthly, the controversy. Look at verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking? with tax collectors and sinners. Well, we've been introduced to the scribes before in Mark. This is our first encounter with the Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark. The scribes, if you remember, they were the experts in the Jewish law. They're like the lawyers. They, They knew it all. They enforced it. Some of them, many of them, were also members of this religious party, you could call it, known as the Pharisees. And this is not the last time we will see the Pharisees. So I'll just just briefly, though, to get you acquainted with them. They were all about one thing, and that is separation. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means the separated ones. 
You have to remember, these Jews, their forefathers fell into sin, idolatry, immorality, and God judged them for it, exiled them from the land. Remember? And so they, real, they realized this and, and they reckoned to themselves, you know, we are not going to make that mistake ever again. So as time went on, this group tried to build a hedge around them to keep them from ever getting even close to sin. And this hedge was an added layer of man-made commands designed to keep them separated from the world so that they would never even get close to being drawn away from God again. It was to keep them as like an added layer of protection above and beyond God's law to keep them away from the world. And so hundreds of laws were added in addition to God's law in the Old Testament. I'll give you an example. You know, in the Old Testament, God commanded the the Jews, observe the Sabbath, do no work on it. Simple enough. But to make sure that they, they would not even come close to violating this command, they added this law that on Sabbath you could not walk more than about a half a mile. It doesn't say that in the Old Testament, but hundreds of laws were added like this, imposed upon the people, even though God had not commanded them, to make sure they were separated from sin. So this is why the Pharisees are so upset with Jesus here. He was breaking their laws. He wasn't breaking any Old Testament law here, but he was breaking with their traditions, their laws. And to them, that was just as bad. But the Pharisees fell into three errors here. First, they created their own standard of godliness, and that is the definition of legalism. They created their own standard of godliness, and that is really the definition of legalism. If you want to make some rules for right living, and you impose them upon yourself only, knock yourself out. But the second you impose your rules on other people, such that if they fall short of your standard, you condemn condemn them as sinners for falling short, that is legalism. Jesus himself everywhere condemns this because we do not have the authority to create some other standard of righteousness. Christians today can fall into the same error. And I always think of the the notorious laws created by fundamentalist churches in the mid-20th century. You probably know. No drinking, no dancing, no dating, no chewing, and so forth. All these no's. But they're not in the Bible. But if you break these rules, well, then you're a sinner. But sorry, this goes beyond Scripture. It's a false standard of righteousness. If it goes beyond Scripture, it's false. It's legalism, and you must reject and avoid this like Jesus does. Secondly, the Pharisees erred in choosing law over grace. They erred in choosing law over grace. Whether they were talking about their own laws or even God's law, they were all about the law and not grace. I mean, to them, these tax collectors and sinners, they did not deserve any compassion or mercy. I mean, they deserved judgment. They deserved to be shunned and treated like scum because they were wicked. And so, no, Jesus, no, you should not be eating with them. If you're a holy man, you must be separated from them. 
But what is the problem with this? And much of what they were thinking was true. These sinners and tax collectors, they did deserve judgment and wrath and condemnation. That's true. But then again, so does everyone. Even the Pharisees, for everyone is a sinner. Everyone is corrupt and rotten in God's eyes. And this leads to their third error, the Pharisees. They failed to understand their own sinfulness. They failed to realize that they were under just as much wrath as these sinners and tax collectors. Because even if you keep the law, go ahead and try. You stumble once, you're guilty of it all. And we've all stumbled. Everyone has stumbled. And so we all stand condemned, deserving judgment. Which also means that we all need grace and mercy and compassion from God. And that's why Jesus came. If he came just to give us all what we deserved, well then we all just go to hell and a story. But he came to extend grace to give us what we don't deserve. And this is the love of God on display. So we want grace. We need grace, this divine favor. And once you get it, once you have received this grace from God, you know it, it leads you to one unavoidable conclusion. Well, if I have received God's grace, how can I refuse to show it to others? How can I not be patient and merciful and compassionate with others? That is what God has done for me. If you're born again, if you know God, if you have received his gracious salvation, then, then this convicts you. you. You get this. You just, you just get this. And you're compelled. You're compelled, although we fail, to show grace to others. You need to always remember this lesson because even today, Christians can fall into that same error of choosing law and justice and wrath over grace. The Pharisees, however, they didn't get that. And that's because they had not received God's grace. They lived by the law. And the law, the law and grace, they can't live together. Their hearts were hardened to God and his truth. And they could have been saved, but their pride and their self-righteousness barred them from the kingdom. And do not make their mistake. I mean, sure, they avoided the gross sins of their fathers, but they swung into a new kind of spiritual darkness that is just as bad and it's self-righteous legalism. You must avoid that. And it is this which Jesus rebukes now. We see number five now, verse 17, the comeback. The comeback. We've seen the call, or rather the context, the call, the celebration, the controversy. And to finish it off in verse 17, look at the comeback. You know, the Pharisees, at this point, they didn't have the nerve to approach Jesus directly, so they go to his disciples. But when he gets wind of it, what they're saying, he doesn't let them be. He addresses this, and we see the comeback, verse 17. 
Verse 17. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. As is so often the case, Jesus responds with a a proverb, a truism, that so masterfully proves his point. I mean, what good would a doctor be if he never wanted to be around sick people? That, That defeats the whole point of being a doctor, to try and help sick people. Your whole job is to help those who are sick. And so by definition, you have to be around them. There is this very obvious, but nonetheless essential pairing between those who are sick and those who can help them, doctors. And likewise, there is an essential pairing between those who are spiritually sick and the one, the only one who can help them, and that is Jesus. He's the great physician of souls. So likewise, what good would Jesus be if he never spent any time with his patients? What kind of savior would he be if he never visited the spiritually sick? Again, he did not come to earth to to live in a monastery and then to die on a cross somewhere where no no one even knew about it so that he could be never exposed to man's sin. No, he came, he lived among the sick because they're the ones that needed him and the healing spiritually that he provided. So this is how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. They're in the wrong with their their grumbling here. But don't confuse things. Don't mistake this comeback with Jesus actually affirming their righteousness because he's not. Far from it. He's actually confronting here their self-righteousness. He was their Messiah, but he wanted nothing to do with them. So what does that tell you? And who, who's the real sick one in this equation? It's not the sinners. It's not the tax collectors. It's the Pharisees. They were sicker than everyone else. They were on their spiritual deathbeds, but they didn't even know it. They had no idea. And they refused to acknowledge their condition. And so for this reason, they stayed on the outside. They were on the outside from the Messiah. They were not righteous. They were only self-righteous. But this brings us actually to the ultimate lesson of this text. So think about this. What is the requirement for salvation? Well, what is the one requirement to be saved? To be with God, for God to accept you, what's the requirement? And there's only one. The Pharisees thought the answer was righteousness. You have to be righteous to be with God. And they thought that came by keeping the law. Just keep the law, you'll be righteous, and then you'll be in the kingdom. You'll be one of God's. And you know what? They were half right. They were right in the fact that righteousness is the requirement. You do have to be righteous to be saved, to be accepted by God. Only You can't get that from the law. You cannot get righteousness by trying to keep the law. The law only brings condemnation and wrath. The law can only condemn. 
We do need righteousness. We need a perfect righteousness, but actually that's a problem when you realize that because we are not righteous and we cannot produce it. We cannot earn it or gain it on our own. We need it. We can't get it. But Jesus came to provide this righteousness for us. You have to go through him. And when you get this, then you understand what is the real only requirement for salvation. When you understand this, yeah, we need righteousness. We can't get it. It's only through him. You get that. Then you find out what the real requirement is to be saved. And I'll tell you, it's this. Brokenness. You have to be broken. To go to Jesus, you have to be broken over your own sin. You have to be humbled over your unrighteousness before a righteous God and realize I I don't deserve it. I, I am unclean. I am the rotten. There's nothing I can do about it. You must realize just how bad you are and that your only hope, your only hope is God just being merciful with you and saving you. And if you do that, if you get that and you ask God for that, he hears that and he meets that response. You must do this today. You know, later on in his ministry, Jesus told a parable and it so perfectly captures this lesson. Let me read it for you. It's the parable of the publican and the Pharisee or the tax collector. And the Pharisee, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This tax collector, like Matthew, was broken over his sin. And he realized his desperation for God's mercy. And he found it. That's how you find it. But the Pharisee was puffed up in pride, thinking himself righteous enough to get there on his own. I I can do it. I can get there on my own. And in this, he was grossly mistaken. And this lesson from Matthew's story, we find, is absolutely essential. Salvation 
is not for the righteous because there are none righteous, not even one. Salvation is only for the broken, the humbled, the sinner who sees his sin and knows he can't do anything about it. It is this one who begs God for mercy and it's this one who finds it always. God is always there because he's a gracious God. And so I leave just praying that among you, you would be the broken. And that you would be those who find grace in Jesus. Lord, we bow before you, thanking you for this word. We need your grace, we confess, uh, in all things. We confess our sin. We confess our brokenness. And that we are not close to being good enough to be accepted before you on our own. We are far from it. We are the unrighteous. But by Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, he gives us his perfect righteousness, taking our sin in return. Uh, what, a, what a joy this brings when we have received this. All we can do is, is praise you for this grace. Be always gracious with us, Lord. I thank you even myself, personally, graciously helping me get through this sermon. But in, in all of us, we can think through our lives how you are gracious with us in so many ways. And I pray just as we leave here, we can all just be reflecting on this one truth. This God who has been so gracious with us, how can we not be gracious with others? Convict us in these things, Lord. Remind us always. And we thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.